Just a quick word um, of an upcoming class that we're offering um, in December, in January, and February. Uh, our brother Larry Reed, uh, who's recovering from a minor surgical procedure, so you can pray for him. He's doing well. But he's going to begin teaching that class in December. It's going to be on the subject of baptism. And it's not just designed for people who are exploring baptism or not sure about baptism, but it's more um, a theology, a whole Bible theology of the, of the subject of baptism. I think it'll be really edifying and useful. I've talked about the class with Larry. We've met over a couple of lunches and tried to refine it and shape it so that it can be maximally helpful for our congregation. So if you're not regularly in the habit of attending Pastor Keith's class, don't skip out if you're regularly in his class. But if you're not in a class, please jump in with us starting the first Sunday of December, and I think you'll enjoy that class very much. You may come away with it. I hope you'll come away from it thinking, Wow, I never thought how relevant baptism was for my Christian life and for the doctrine of the church. It's huge. And so if it's a minor thing in your mind, if it's something that's, uh, yeah, it's there, but it's not a significant thing, I'd encourage you to uh, take in that class. So we are in 2 Samuel again. We're picking the narrative up after a couple of weeks off a little bit in the Psalms, looking at Psalm 3 and Psalm 63. And we're coming back now to the story um, as the writer Samuel records it for us, um, or the, the author of 2 Samuel records it for us in, in, the, in the book. So we are going to, um, I'm going to briefly review just sort of where we are in the story, and then we're going to dive in uh, to our text this morning, which is chapter 17 and 18. We're going to look at those two chapters this morning. If you'll, if you'll turn back with me, if you've got your copy of scriptures, and I hope you do, look back at 2 Samuel 7, and I just want to review briefly the covenant that God made with David. This is before David's sin with Bathsheba. It's at the height of his reign, and, he, and um, God makes a covenant with him, and I want to review some of those verses. Just verses 13 to 15 of chapter 7, 2 Samuel 7, 13 to 15, notice what God tells David. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So David's kingdom's not going anywhere. 14, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. God promises he's going to establish a forever kingdom through David. Not just a a, a kingdom that's limited to David's lifetime, but one that's going to exist forever. And even David's sin will not prevent that kingdom from marching forward. Let's look at chapter 12, verses 10 and 11. This is what the prophet Nathan says to David right after David commits his sin, which the Lord will begin to discipline him for, as he even said in the covenant in in chapter 7. Verses 10 and 11 of chapter 12. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the son. Verse 12, for you did it secretly and I will do this thing before Israel and before the son. So there's one of David's consequences that someone from within his own house would would rise up against him and threaten his throne, threaten his kingdom. Well, we know who that's going to be. That's going to be his son, Absalom. But the 
It begins, things begin to trend downward pretty quickly in the life of David right after his sin, and he comes under the discipline of the Lord first with a different son, Amnon. You remember Amnon in chapter 13. Amnon commits rape against his sister Tamar. Where do you think Amnon learned to treat women that way? He learned it from his father, David, who saw and took Bathsheba that way. And then what happens? Well, Absalom resolves to kill Amnon for his sin against Tamar. Where did you think Absalom learned to resolve his problems with murder from? He learned that from his dad too, who took the life of Uriah instead of own his own sin. So the sin of David is starting to ripple out into the family already. It's rippling into the life of Amnon, the way he treats women, rippling into the life of Absalom, the way he murders to solve problems. And then Absalom creates a coup to steal the throne from David in chapter 15, and David has to flee into the wilderness on the run from Absalom. He gets cursed in the wilderness. He gets, look, he gets hope in the wilderness. But it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a difficult, difficult time in the life of David, and it's during those times that he wrote Psalm 3 and Psalm 63, which we covered the last few weeks. Now we come to chapter 17 and 18. David's still in the wilderness, but there are significant things happening that will restore his kingdom to him. And we see that in chapter 17 and 18. The first is that Absalom is killed. And Ahithophel, who was sort of the main actor here who was giving counsel to Absalom, goes out and commits suicide. So without David doing anything... God is defending David's throne and making sure that David is the one who will sit on the throne. So there is this level of God's judgment that's running through the story as people oppose the Lord's anointed David and God fights to defend him in answer to many of the prayers that David was no doubt praying in Psalm 3 and Psalm 63. Now there are four characters in this, these two chapters and I know this outline that I've put before you is just gripping. I mean, it's just amazing. The counsel of Ahithophel, the counsel of Hushai, the death of Ahithophel, and the death of Absalom. That's what happens in these two chapters, and we're going to get deeper than just that. But I want to remind you of who these four characters are, well, at least those three, and then David as well. These are the four characters that we see in these chapters and sort of what they're doing. So Ahithophel is sort of the main counselor to the king. And he is betraying David and giving counsel to Absalom in league with him to try to take the throne from David. So let's review where, what we've seen of Ahithophel so far before we get into his counsel in just a moment. Look back at chapter 15 and look at the very last section of chapter 15. This is Absalom's already created a conspiracy. He's already trying to take the throne. And then we read beginning in verse 30, of chapter 15, the following. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads as they went, weeping as they went. And it was told, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. God will answer that prayer in a couple of chapters, which we'll get to this morning. Verse 32, while David was coming to the summit, where God was worshipped, behold, Hushai. We're going to see him again this morning. Here he is the first time he pops up in the narrative. Hushai the archite came to meet him with his coat torn and dirt on his head. Now, Hushai is loyal to David. We'll see that in just a moment. Verse 33, David said to him, if you go on with me, you'll be a burden to me. 
But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I have been your father's servant in time past, so now I will be your servant, then you will defeat for me the counsel of Ahithophel. And so, verse 37, Hushai, David's friend, came into the city just as Absalom was entering Jerusalem. So basically, David uses Hushai, who's loyal to him, as a spy of sorts to go check on Absalom and what Absalom is up to. So we got one man whose counsel, namely Ahithophel, is against David, and one man, Hushai, who will give counsel to Absalom, who is for David. We'll come to that in these chapters this morning. Before we get there, look at chapter 16 again and see Absalom as he interacts with Ahithophel and Hushai. Verse 15 of chapter 16. Now Absalom and all the people and men of Israel came to Jerusalem and Ahithophel with him. And when Hushai the archite, David's friend, came to Absalom, Hushai said to Absalom, long live the king, long live the king. And Absalom said to Hushai, is, the, is your loyalty to your friend? Why did you not go with your friend? And Hushai said to Absalom, no, for whom the Lord and this people and all the men of Israel have chosen, his I will be and with him I will remain. And again, whom shall I serve? Should it be his son as I have served your father, so I will serve you. Now notice in verse 20, what Absalom says to Ahithophel after talking to Hushai. Then Absalom said to Ahithophel, give your counsel, what shall we do? Ahithophel said to Absalom, go into your father's concubines whom he has left to keep the house and all Israel will hear and you have made yourself a stench to your father and the hands of all who are with you will be strengthened. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof and Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Now in those days, the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed both by David and by Absalom. Now, what does Absalom do? Well, he sleeps with his father's concubines in fulfillment of what Nathan said would happen to him in chapter 12. Remember, we read those verses just a few moments ago. So there's a strange thing going on in these chapters in 2 Samuel because there's, at the same time, David is receiving judgment for his sin and David's enemies are receiving judgment for their sin against David. <laughs> it's a really strange set of circumstances, but it's, it, the, the point is, is that God's king will not be overthrown by anyone other than God himself. And God's king is chosen by God by grace, not as a result of David's activity or his merit. And so David is still on the throne or will be back on the throne, even though he's on the run right now, even as Absalom stages this coup. Now, what we're going to see in these chapters, verses chapter 17 and 18, are two words of counsel and two deaths. The two words of counsel are from Ahithophel first and then Hushai, and then second, the two deaths are first of Ahithophel and then of Absalom. And these chapters clear the way for David to come back into Jerusalem and back to the throne. And in the final couple of messages in 2 Samuel, we're going to see David um, making reckoning with uh, both his friends and his enemies and God's promises to him as the book concludes. And David passes away. So first of all, the counsel of Ahithophel, verses 1 to 4. We read, Steve read these for us, so I won't read them again. But essentially, Ahithophel advises Absalom to finish off the coup that he began in chapters 15 and 16 by quickly killing David. We're, we're, we're done playing around. Let's not mess with this guy. Let's, let's hunt him down, let's smoke him out, and let's kill him. And strikingly, 
He's asking Absalom, Ahithophel that is, is asking Absalom to do the very thing that David did with Uriah. Isolate him and kill him. His rationale? Well, let's not let this be prolonged. Let's just end it in a single day so we don't have to let this war drag on and on and on, and, which would only embitter the people against Absalom and separate the kingdom even, even further. Let's just kill David. Let's take the throne. Let's be done with this. So Ahithophel offers to lead 12,000 men with the sole objective of ending David's life. And the 12,000 number is not incidental. That would represent 1,000 people from every one of the 12 tribes of Israel, essentially a battle to determine who's the true king, David or Absalom. The rationale is simple. Once David has been killed, there will be no one left for the opposition to rally behind, and it will effectively put an end to any loyalty to David. Since David is off the scene now, all you've got is Absalom. And so Ahithophel assumes and Absalom agrees that everybody will unite behind Absalom. Absalom's a traitor to David, but so is Ahithophel. Now, what Ahithophel is doing and the counsel that he's offering Absalom sounds eerily similar to Psalm 41, 5 to 9. Listen to these verses. My enemies say of me in malice, when will he die and his name perish? And when one comes to me, he utters empty words while his heart gathers iniquity. When he goes out, he tells it abroad. All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. They say a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. That's what's happening to David right there. Ahithophel, a faithful friend, a counselor of him, whose counsel was like the word of God to David, has betrayed him and arranged for his death through his son, who is also a traitor. Sounds like Psalm 55, 12 to 14. For it's not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It's not an adversary who deals insolent with me, then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together within God's house. We walked in the throng. This is what he would have said about Ahithophel. You're my friend. You're... you're, You're like at my right hand, you're giving me counsel. And yet now you're using the very mouth that was filled with the word of God to end the life of God's anointed king. You know what? Just as David was betrayed here by Ahithophel, our Lord Jesus, the son of David, was betrayed by one of his close disciples too, wasn't he? Judas. John 13, 18, we read, I'm not speaking to all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Quoting Psalm, quoting the Psalm that we just read in Psalm 41. Yet just as Ahithophel counseled David to steal the kingdom by killing the anointed king, David, how did Jesus' enemies think they could put an end to Jesus? It's by nailing him to the cross. Matthew 21, 38, but when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. But God, dear ones, will always have the last word. He'll have the last word in David's life and he'll have the last word in Jesus' life and he'll have the last word in our lives. Proverbs 19, 21, many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it's the purpose of the Lord that will stand. So that's the counsel of Ahithophel. 
Let's kill David today. Second, the council of Hushai. The council of Hushai. Look beginning at verse 6, and we get Hushai's council. Remember, Hushai's a spy for David, and he's back with Absalom, and Absalom's kind of looking at both of these guys like, all right, give me your input. Okay, give me your input. So here's Ahithophel's input. Let's kill David. Now what is Hushai going to say about that? He's kind of stuck, right? <laughs> Look at verse 6. When Hushai came to Absalom, Absalom said to him, thus has Ahithophel spoken. Shall we do what he says? If not, you speak. So should we kill or not? Ooh, you could imagine the tense, tense feeling in the room now. Then Hushai said to Absalom, this time the counsel that Ahithophel has given is not good. That's, so you thought maybe Hushai was a little bit of a pushover in chapter 15. We said, long live the king, long live the king. Well, the people have chosen you, you're the king, I'll identify with you. He's not lying there, but he is being slightly deceptive because Absalom doesn't, he's not owed the whole truth there. But notice he's standing up against the main counselor to the king right now. Look at verse 8. Hushai said, you know that your father and his men are mighty men and that they are enraged like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. Besides, your father is expert in war. He'll not spend the night with the people. Behold, even now he has hidden himself in one of the pits or in some other place. As soon as some of the people fall at the first attack, whoever hears it will say, there's been a slaughter among the people who follow Absalom. Then even the valiant men whose heart is like the heart of a lion, will utterly melt with fear, for all Israel knows that your father is a mighty man, that those who are with him are valiant men. But my counsel is that all Israel be gathered to you, from Dan to Beersheba, as the sand by the sea for multitude, and that you go to battle in person. So we shall come upon him in some place where he is to be found. We shall light upon him as, a, as the dew falls on the ground. And of him and all the men with him, not one will be left. If he withdraws into the city, then all Israel will bring ropes to that city. And we shall drag him into the valley until not even a pebble is to be found there. Finally, verse 14. And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The council of Hushai the Archite is better than the council of Ahithophel. For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel, so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. So what's going on here? Well, Absalom's plan is initially received by, or sorry, Ahithophel's plan is initially received by Absalom, but he decides to get a second opinion. And so Hushai, who we know is loyal to David, carefully undermines Ahithophel's plan by playing on Absalom's fears and David's reputation as a fighter. He knows who he's dealing with. He flatters Absalom because Absalom is easily flattered and loves praise. And he appeals to his vanity by proposing that Absalom himself should lead the army. And Absalom chooses Hushai's plan instead because this will make, get more glory for Absalom. And so he's playing in to the pride and the vanity that he knows is characteristic of Absalom to get him to do what would be in David's best interest. In response to David's prayer in chapter 15, God is bringing the counsel of Ahithophel to nothing. It's, he's making it foolish in the eyes of Absalom. Let's praise the Lord for answering David's prayer. Dear ones, our prayers, no matter if you notice this little one sentence prayer that David just flings out gets answered very specifically by God. The power of prayer. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills, right? 
He does that often in response to prayer. It's what he did with Absalom here. Even though Absalom's not the king, he's pretending to be. But he turned, God turned his heart away. Proverbs 21.30, no wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. <laughs> and that's what the Lord's proving here. No counsel will prevail against my counsel. Even when all seems lost from our perspective, right? And David's looks lost. I mean, his kingdom looks like it's going down, but God is accomplishing his purposes. Just as God is sovereignly thwarting Ahithophel's plan and Absalom's plan, so through the resurrection, God thwarted the plans also of those who tried to kill our Savior, didn't they? Acts 20, or Acts 2, verses 23 and 24. This Jesus delivered up according to what? The definite plan. And foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, but God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. You had an evil plan. You wanted to kill the the son of David. God has a plan. You will kill him, but it will be according to my plan and I'm going to raise him up. That's what God is doing even here in the life of David to prepare for the son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ, whose kingdom will be forever. So Hushai delivered David, but how, did he, how does he deliver David? By deceiving Absalom. Now, there are other examples in Scripture in which God's people misled others through deceit to serve a good end. We think of Rahab hiding the spies in Joshua 2 or the midwives protecting the Hebrew babies in Exodus 1. That's what is going on here with Hushai. While we must, as God's people, be people of the truth who do not tell lies or practice falsehood, While this requires great wisdom, in certain situations, it is not a lie to withhold the whole truth from someone, especially for those who intend to use it to sin or to do great harm. Withholding all the truth is not a whole lie. In fact, it reveals that the truth is not always owed to people who would want it. And you don't have to lie to do that. You just don't have to tell them the truth. So that's the counsel of Hushai, which succeeds Now we're going to come in chapter 17 and 18 to the result of this plan. So Ahithophel had a plan. Hushai had a plan. They both offered counsel to Absalom. Absalom listened to both of them, said, let's go with Hushai's plan. And that's going to result in the death of Ahithophel and the death of Absalom and the return of David. So we come now to the two deaths. We've seen the two words of counsel. Now let's come to the two deaths. First, the death of Ahithophel. And again, we read some of this in... um, Verse 23, where uh, Ahithophel goes and saddles his donkey and goes to his home city and hangs himself. But I want, you, I, want you, I want to read what led up to that. So let's pick up the story in verse 15 of chapter 17. So, chapter 17, verse 15. Then Ahushai said to Zadok and Abiathar, the priest, Thus, and so did Ahithophel counsel Absalom and the elders of Israel, and thus, and so have I counseled. Now therefore, now Hushai is going to get this fixed on David's end. Send quickly and tell David, do not stay tonight at the fords of the wilderness, but by all means pass over, lest the king and all the people who are with him be swallowed up. So now Jonathan and Ahamaz were waiting at Enrogel. A female servant was to go and tell them, and they were to go and tell King David, for they were not to be seen entering the city. But a young man saw them and told Absalom. So both of them went away and quickly came to the house of a man at Bahurim who had a well in his courtyard, and they went down into it. And the woman took and spread a covering over the well's mouth and scattered grain on it. Nothing was known of it. 
When Absalom's servant came to the woman at the house, they said, where is Ahimaaz and Jonathan? The woman said to them, they've gone over to the brook of water. And when they had sought and could not find them, they returned to Jerusalem. After they had gone, the men came up out of the well and went and told David. They said to David, arise and go quickly over the water, for thus and so is Ahithophel counseled against you. Then David rose and all the people who were with him, and they crossed the Jordan. By daybreak, not one was left who had not crossed the Jordan. So Hushai essentially activates the spy network that he has been forming to get the news back to David. And David is informed of the plan by two ark-carrying informants who went back to Jerusalem who trigger a chain of messengers to get that information to David. And then we read in verse 23, Ahithophel's response. He went out and killed himself. Now, much like Ahithophel, Judas, who betrayed Jesus, also took his life when he saw that his plan had been thwarted. Matthew 27, 1 to 5. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate the governor. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. Acts 1, 15 to 19, in those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in his min- this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out and it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. Now, the pitiful end of Ahithophel illustrates for us something very critical. Do you notice that David is living the life that Jesus would pattern his life after and that would happen to Jesus? When we read Jesus' life and why Judas goes out and hangs himself, we are to think, Ahithophel did that with David. Ahithophel did that with Absalom. Like this isn't the first time that this has occurred. And what we see is the son of David walking in the steps of his father, David, and doing it without sin. Coming to the throne through suffering, unjust suffering that is resulting in the Lord Jesus establishing David's throne forever. And the pitiful end of Ahithophel illustrates for us that a person can be very smart and very gifted, like Ahithophel was, whose counsel was like the word of God. But if they don't honor the Lord, they will eventually spin away, and ultimately their life will be a failure. Ahithophel, like so many others, looks at his own life, looks at the failure of his life, And the fact that his plan didn't go the way it was supposed to go. And he commits suicide because he has no hope for the future. And I think he's getting to know Absalom too pretty well. And he knows that David's probably going to come back to the throne. And he's going to die anyway. Because he's committed treason. 
against the king. And so he just kills himself. But there's even hope, dear ones. This didn't have to end this way for Ahithophel. At a certain level, a certain level it was God's plan, but at another level, Ahithophel was entirely responsible for everything he was doing. And it didn't have to go down that way. What if he would have been like a Mephibosheth who pled with mercy for, for David to forgive him for his sin and promised that, and he would just be like us, just make me a slave. What do you think David would have done? Knowing David. David have any tendency to forgive people who'd wronged him? He's already done it. He's been doing it in the wilderness. Shimei was cursing him a couple of weeks ago. Remember that? And he said, hold on, don't kill him. The Lord might be in it. I don't think he would have killed Ahithophel. But Ahithophel killed himself because he felt like he didn't have any hope for grace. And dear ones, maybe some of us are this morning, maybe we're not on the verge of doing what Ahithophel did, but we do feel like there is too much failure, there's no hope in my life, and that even if I came to the Lord for mercy, he wouldn't give it to me. I betrayed him too much. Let me read you the words of the Apostle Peter when he was talking to the people who killed Jesus. Any hope for them? Acts 2, 36 to 39. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? What did Peter say? What do you mean, what shall we do? There's no hope for you. You're going to die. Apostles, get the swords. No, he says, repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit will indwell the murderers of Jesus. For the promise is for you and for your children, for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. There is no one outside the bounds of God's mercy. And that includes you. I don't think you had a hand in specifically killing Jesus with your hands. Now, we could say, theologically, of course, we all put Jesus to death. Our sin was what nailed him there. But nevertheless, these guys were the actual ones that did it. And so I think Paul would say to us, if Paul had, like he says in 1 Timothy 1, if God had mercy on me, he can have mercy on you. <laughs> and let it be just that response by you this morning, that if you find yourself somewhat in a Ahithophel kind of mode, that you would turn away from your hopelessness and turn to the living hope of Jesus Christ. There will be no hope in you. There will be no hope in yourself or in your improvement and your pledge to do better, turn over another leaf, give me a second chance, God. You don't need a second chance. You need a second Adam, and God has provided it for you. And he's way better than a second chance. Number four, the death of Absalom. This is our final point. So we've seen the death of Hithphel, now the death of Absalom. David is helped by three loyal friends who risked their lives in order to come to his aid. And while Absalom was hunting him down through Amasa, the new head of his army, David's friends, in verses 28 and 29, we read the following. David's friend brought beds, basins, earthen vessels, wheat, barley, flour, parched grain, beans and lentils, honey and curds, and sheep and cheese from the herd for David and the people with him to eat, for they said the people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. It's like they read Psalm 63 already. When, remember last week when David was talking about, I'm dry, I'm living in a, I'm thirsty. That's both spiritual and physical. He really is bereft of food and water. 
And just as David's friends helped him at great personal risk and significant cost, so our friend, the Lord Jesus Christ, crossed heaven and earth to get to us. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And just as these friends willingly served God's anointed king, we, out of the response to God's generosity to us, should willingly serve the Lord Jesus Christ, the anointed one, the heir of David's throne, even if we pay a price for that loyalty, and we will. We're called to be these kinds of friends to each other, as David's friends were to him, as members of Heritage Baptist Church. Romans 12.10, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Romans 12.15, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Isn't that what David's friends are doing with him here? 1 John 3.17 and 18, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And that's what David's friends are doing for him here. They're saying, I know what we run risk identifying with David here, but the guys in the wilderness and his men are fighting valiantly for the kingdom. They've had to flee for their lives. We are going to go identify with them and help them. And just as these friends are eventually rewarded by David, and we'll get to that next week, it's glorious. So we too will be rewarded by our Lord Jesus. I can't resist it. I got it in my notes, so I'm going to give it to you. Spoiler alert. David's coming back to the throne and he's going to reward these friends for what they did. And I, I want to share with you what he says. This is 2 Samuel 19. Now Barzillai the Gileadite had come down from Rogalim and he went on with the king to the Jordan to escort him over the Jordan. Barzillai was a very aged man, 80 years old. He had provided the king with food while he stayed at Mahanaim for he was a very wealthy man. And the king said to Barzillai, come over with me and I'll provide for you with me in Jerusalem. What's David doing here? He's remembering the faithfulness of a friend to him when it was really difficult. John 14, Jesus says the following to his faithful friends, his disciples, inviting them to his place when they're all said and done with their life too. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Isn't that what David's doing for Barzillai here? It's what Jesus does for us. In chapter 18, the tide turns and David is able to muster enough of his army to take back his kingdom. And David prepares his men by dividing his troops among three generals. You've got David's men, they insist on not putting himself at risk by entering the fray of the battle, and they're going to go first. But the main point is what David gives them. He gives them specific instructions. Look at chapter 18, verse 5. And the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. Now, the description of the battle is very brief, and the main point is what happens to Absalom. In verses 6 to 15, as Absalom is fleeing through the forest, his horse goes under a heavy brush and his hair gets tangled up and he's literally suspended in the air. David's men quickly surround him and one of the men says, David said not to hurt him. But Joab, the commander of the army, says, nonsense. We cannot leave this guy alive. He's just going to do this all over again. So he gets three javelins and thrusts them through, through Absalom's heart. And he said, I'll answer to David for it. 
Now, Absalom is caught by his hair, which according to chapter 14, verse 26, is a source of great pride for him. Absalom is killed by his own glory. He's killed by his own source of pride. It's pride that killed Absalom ultimately. 2 Samuel 14, 26 says, and when he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of every hair, every year he used to cut it, when it was heavy on him, he cut it. He weighed the hair of his head 200 shekels by the king's weight. His glory leads to his downfall. Absalom was hanging, suspended between heaven and earth on a tree. The royal mule had run out from under him, a sign that he was losing control of the reins of his kingdom. And according to Deuteronomy 21-23, one hung on a tree is under the curse of God. Dear ones, our first parents, Adam and Eve, were placed under a curse because of a tree. And we are born under a curse, just like Absalom was. Jesus came and hung on a tree, not for our sins, not for his own sins, sorry, like Absalom did on that tree, but rather for our sins. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it's written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. Just like Absalom, Christ had a spear thrust through him, right through his heart, pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. Dear ones and kids, especially teens, listen to me, please. Absalom stands here as a monument of warning to rebellious children who proudly turn from the Lord and dishonor their parents. Proverbs 20, verse, or Exodus 20, verse 12, honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God gave you. One of the reasons that Absalom's life is cut short is because he didn't honor his dad. He didn't love his father. He loved his father's job and he wanted it and he coveted it and he would do anything to take it, including killing his own father. Proverbs 20, verse 20, if one curses his father or his mother, his lamp will be put out in utter darkness. That's exactly what happens to Absalom. Proverbs 30, verse 17, the eye that mocks a father and scorns to obey a mother will be picked out by the ravens of the valley and eaten by vultures. It would have eventually, if Absalom hung there long enough, all of his skin would have been picked off of his bones and his eyes gouged out as a result of ravens and vultures eating his flesh. The Lord will bring rightful judgment on those who refuse to repent. Psalm 92, 7 to 9. That though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. For behold your enemies, O Lord. For behold, your enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered. That's what God's doing here with Absalom. That's what God will do with us if we fail to repent and trust his king and follow him. But this will always grieve the hearts of your parents, kids, who love you and want God's best for you. It grieved and killed the heart of David. When people were bringing word back to David about the battle, every time David asked them, what about Absalom? What about Absalom? Is he safe? Eventually, one of the messengers who knows Absalom has been killed but can't bring himself to tell David says directly at chapter 18, Near the end, verse 32, he says, the king said to the Cushite, is it well with the young men of Absalom? And the Cushite answered, may the enemies of my lord, the king, and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. 
He essentially said, your son's gone. The next verse describes one of the most heart-wrenching scenes of David's life. Indeed, maybe the whole Old Testament. Look at verse 33. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would I had died instead of you, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. You could just feel the pathos in David's words. He's shaken. He's, a, he's encountered the crushing realization of all that has happened comes down on him. But it's too late. And thus ends the tragic story of David and his son Absalom. Parents, let's also see a warning here from David's example. His concern here for Absalom is not altogether righteous. And it's not altogether right. Remember, his concern for his rebellious son exceeded who? His love for his faithful followers and even the will of God. We can have a tender affection for our children and still raise them poorly, especially when we, like Eli or Samuel, are more concerned with keeping our children happy than pleasing the Lord. Still, nothing breaks the heart of godly parents like prodigals. But dear ones, if that is you, and that's many of us this morning, take comfort in the fact that you have a father in heaven who's got lots of prodigals. Isaiah 1-2, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. God knows what it's like to rear some children and have them rebel. You think you can go to him in that struggle that you have? You think he'll hear you? You think he'll sympathize with you in that? Of course he will. Just as David sorrowed over the fate of his wayward son, Jesus wept over the unbelief of his people too. Luke 19.41, when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. Luke 13.34, oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills, sounds like, oh Absalom, oh Absalom. The city that kills the prophets and stoned those who were sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. It almost sounds, it's the same passion that David is expressing. Although with Christ, it's altogether righteous. And the good news is that unlike David, our Jesus is able to bring the prodigals home. We don't have, David had, had little hope. We have a lot of hope. Luke 1, 17, and he will go before him, that is Jesus, in the power and spirit of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Our Lord is able to turn the heart back. And so the Lord is in control. Let's put our hope in him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for these chapters in David's story. They became chapters in many ways in the story of the son of David, the Lord Jesus, as he was on the run for his life and was pursued and betrayed by friends and enemies and who nevertheless went to a tree voluntarily to die, not for his own sins, but for ours. And we thank you that he is a great savior, that he is a greater king than David ever was or could be because he is able to do for us what David could never do even for his own children. Jesus, you are able to make us right with the Father. 
You were able to forgive us of our sins. You were able to count us righteous by faith in you. You were able to change us on the inside so that we love you and love one another. And don't rip each other apart as a church like David's family did. But you can grant us unity and peace and joy and harmony and all the fruits of the Spirit because of what you have done in your life and death and resurrection. And so we end this sermon celebrating your life, celebrating your death, celebrating your resurrection, singing back to you the glory of what you have done. And we thank you that even though Absalom's glory led to his death, you are glorified, Lord Jesus, in your death because you have purchased us by it. And we now worship you in light of it. In your name, we sing, celebrate, and pray. Amen. Let's stand together and respond.